Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. We are your hosts, Talia Bacassis and Kim France. And our guest today is Susan Burton. Susan is an editor at This American Life, where she's produced some of the show's most notable episodes and some of my personal favorites, including Five Women, which if you have not heard it, you must run and go listen to it. Her personal essay was made into the feature film Unaccompanied Minors, and she is also the author of a fantastic new memoir, Empty, about her struggle with eating disorders. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Susan. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you. So, Susan, we we basically, I don't even know how this happened. We have a bajillion questions, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get through them. Um, but your book is about your complex relationship with food and with your body and with an eating disorder that evolves and mutates. But maybe a starting point for the listener would be to hear you describe it in your words. Sure, yes. So, Empty tells the story of the eating disorders, uh, anorexia and binge eating, that defined my adolescence and really my adulthood, too, though I don't think I totally understood that until I wrote this book. And I mean, the other really important thing to know is that I kept the binge eating secret for years. And it wasn't until writing this book that I, I told the secret. Um, the anorexia was less of a secret because it had been visible, um, but it wasn't mm -hmm. something I talked about. So basically, I wrote this book about stuff that I'd never spoken about. I'm 46 yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How scary was it to publish it? The scariest part I think, was not publishing it, but deciding to write it. Like, uh, it started out as a very different book. It was meant to be a cultural history of adolescence, or a cultural history mm -hmm. of teenage girlhood, really, intertwined with the story of my own adolescence. And 
When I wrote the first draft of that book, the personal stuff sort of took over right away, the personal stuff being um, my eating disorders. And mm-hmm. I was really paralyzed um, for for years because um, the eating disorder material, as soon as I put it down on the page, it was clear to me that it was like urgent and unresolved. And it was what I needed to write about. And at some level, it was what I really wanted to write about. But mm-hmm. I was too scared to admit that. I was too scared to admit that I wanted to write a memoir about eating disorders um, right. to, to say that this is the story I want to tell more than any other. So that was the scary part. Like, like admitting that and owning up to that uh, was the thing I had to do. Publishing it, yes, is scary in other ways. Well, especially if you say that nobody else, like you didn't tell people about the binge eating part, and that comes out towards the end, you talk about that. But um, this is the moment when you're telling so many people. Yes, it is the moment when I'm telling so many people. But in some ways... It's almost easier to tell a secret in public than it is in private. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, w- like when I think about the night that, like, I sat down with my husband. So this is just you know a year and a half ago. Um, my husband and I have been together since college. We met when we were seventeen. We got together when we were twenty. And I'd never told him about the binging. I didn't tell him until I finished the draft of the manuscript. And uh, sitting down with him at the dinner table and like having to say that aloud is, uh, oh yeah, like one on one is so much harder than saying to a lot of people. I mean, the other thing I'll say about that is um, this whole notion of like telling a secret is so weird during the pandemic because like I'm so rarely face to face with anyone. And because my secret like involved my body, I I just feel like this whole thing would feel so much different if I were a body in the room with another body, if that makes sense. But also telling, uh, sorry, because that is really poignant to me, like you telling your husband who you've been with since college something that he might not know about you that is so big. How did that feel? That was hard because um, I... I didn't know how he would feel if if the roles had been reversed and he said he had this thing to tell me that he'd never told me before. I mean, I would have a huge range of really complicated feelings, right? Like pain and maybe anger. And, you know, why haven't you told me you've been hiding this? I don't know how I would have felt. I mean, that night, like the real hurdle was he didn't understand what binge eating was. <laughs> and so yeah. um, and at that point, I didn't have a lot of experience talking about it. it. It was it was awkward for me to explain it to him. But he was so sensitive and understanding. I mean, like it, it honestly couldn't have gone better. And I will say that that's been my experience in general with uh, with talking about this um, with people whom I'm close to. Like people are sensitive and understanding and wonderful about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what binge eating was either. What is binge eating? I mean, I think a lot of people don't, which is which is one of the reasons that that I was really driven to write the book about it. So binge eating, it's not just like, you know, eating a pint of ice cream once in a while when you feel sad. It's uh, it's a compulsion. It's it's eating large amounts of food, more than a person would typically eat at one moment and not purging, not vomiting or taking a laxative. And it's it's doing it compulsively. It's doing it in a way that resembles an addiction. For me, you know, it was like the kind of thing where I was always resolving to stop waking up every day. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, but within hours, you know. I would binge and within hours I I would be doing it again. And again, you know, the pattern is, is very different for that. That was my particular pattern. Patterns are are different for everyone. But that was how it looked for me. How did you get past the shame to write this book? That was hard. I mean, uh, I think 
while I was writing, I still had a lot of shame. It felt really good to write the scenes of binging. So like, for instance, to, you know, write a scene where I'm a senior, or, you know, just graduated senior in high school, and I'm in my mother's kitchen, and I'm home from a concert, and I'm opening the cupboard, and I'm, you know, like stuffing like a malt nut power bar into my mouth or stuffing a cliff bar into my mouth or like things that that, that didn't even taste like anything that tasted like dog food. There was something powerful in being able to access that old feeling uh, because there was something sort of aggressive about a binge that um, that I liked being back in touch with. But but I still had shame describing those experiences. I think I didn't really start to deal with the shame until I started therapy, which I started um, very late for somebody um, who'd been struggling with what was clearly a problem. I didn't start therapy until um, a year and a half ago when I was 45. And it was like only in that room that uh, I started to understand my shame. Once you decided to get past your shame and write this book, though, you really like you went there. Like there is a scene I don't want to ruin it for the readers, but you talk about it being your moment of like intense self-abasement when, Mm -hmm. and it's a very graphic scene. And I would imagine a very difficult thing to discuss. I mean, you can mention it if you'd like to, but that to me, I just thought once you went there, you really went there. Yeah. I mean, I can I, I can say what it is. And maybe maybe partly I'll say what it is because um, so my day job, as Telly said, I'm a producer at This American Life. And there's a lot of stuff we can't say on the air because of FCC regulations. And uh, one of them involves this involves defecation because it evokes um, an image. Uh, so so I'll, I'll take the opportunity to say it now on the podcast. It's um, it's a uh, it's a scene where uh, I was home from college and I ate a pan of brownies that my little little sister had baked. I went up to my room and I waited as long as I could. But there was also often kind of a desperation after a binge. I just needed to get out. I needed to go running. Uh, I went outside. It was a really hot day. This is in Boulder, Colorado, you know, dry, high, hot. And um, pretty soon into the run, it was clear to me that my stomach was really messed up. I had to go to the bathroom and I wasn't going to be able to make it home. And I was on like a jogging path and it wasn't like up in a canyon somewhere it was like in the suburban part of boulder in which i lived and you know there was a golf course near me there was like a subdivision on the other side there were like you know moms with like little kids on their bikes on the trail anyway i just went in this meadow and uh and i lost control of my bowels squatted Mm -hmm. in the meadow and went to the bathroom and it was it was awful and Mm -hmm. i think writing that It's funny. When I think back to how I felt with writing it, I'm worried this is going to sound like a little removed. I think I was really worried in writing the scene so that it had emotional power. Like like I was worried about it as a writer. But it also gets to something personal in that that was such a low moment. There was Mm. part of me... Even then, that's the kind of thing I would have gone home and written about right away. There was part of me that always saw writing as like redemptive. Mm-hmm. So if if I can create something out of that moment that's so destructive and like debasing, it redeems it somehow. Mm, right. Whether or not that's healthy or true, that's uh, so. Th- so that's how it felt to write it. I just wanted to to get it right. I think. Well, you mm. you did. It was extremely evocative. 
Um, there was a line that was kind of, kind of a blow to read, but also somehow not surprising. And the line was, eating disorders are primarily a woman's illness and exist within a patriarchal culture that diminishes women's suffering. Can you talk about that? You know, first of all, eating disorders do affect, you know, people of all genders. Men's problem with eating disorders are probably overlooked, but they are primarily women's illnesses. And I wrote that when I was thinking a lot about why I had so much shame and fear and reluctance about telling my own story. Like, I consider myself a serious person, and this was, like, for better or worse, this was, like, my fucking serious problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And why was I so scared and ashamed to write about it? And and I do think that the stories of eating disorders, you know, they're also, they're often told sort of, like, uneasily and apologetically. Um, and I think part of that is because they're women's... <laughs> illnesses and um, Mm. like so many things that affect women, they're taken less seriously than problems that uh, affect men or experiences that that men have and know. I mean, I don't think it's probably easy for a man to write about a mental illness, um, which is what an eating disorder is. But I do think, yes, the diminishment of of eating disorders certainly has to do with the fact that they primarily affect women. Mm -hmm. You also wrote that it was easier to admit that you had anorexia because of the hierarchy of eating disorders. What did you mean by that? It was easier for me to admit to the anorexia because um, there is some kind of cultural valor in in thinness, right? So so, so we value thinness. Um, Mm. And I think that for me personally, it was easier for me to admit to the anorexia because I had so much shame about the binging. And the anorexic part of me, you know, had some pride in the sort of self-mastery and superiority I felt when I was locked inside that part of the illness. And also, I just think that binging... um, I think people don't often understand it. I think that, you know, the the thing that scared me for a long time was that I would write these scenes, a person I know would read these scenes, and we would go out to lunch, and the person would be watching me eat lunch, thinking of Mm -hmm. me in my kitchen doing this thing. I will say that doesn't bother me anymore, but it was this fantasy that, like, like, I had over and over again. It just, it felt humiliating uh, to imagine somebody picturing me um, in that scene, which is not that they necessarily would have, right? Mm-hmm. And binging is like a loss of control, right? It's a loss of control. And we we value, you know, control and discipline. It's almost like there are two opposite sides of a coin, the binging and the anorexia, because one of my closest friends in high school had really severe anorexia. She was hospitalized several times. And it was a really hard thing to understand, except one thing about her was she was from a very well-to-do family. She was very pretty, and she had her whole life mapped out for her. Her father used to say that she would go to this university and that she would marry this kind of guy. And um, at some point, I remember reading that anorexia was a disorder of control. And, And in her case, like my friend's body was the only thing about her life that she felt she could control. Does that sound right to you? Yes. I mean, I do think that uh, control is like inextricable from these disorders and anorexia and binging. I mean, it took me a really long time to realize that they were like the same thing, like like both of them were. Well, in a way, like down deep. Right. Because they're both ways of using food, eating or not eating 
to like to cope with something one doesn't want to feel, eating or not eating to like cope with emotional pain. I mean, binging is often triggered by anorexia, like like physiologically, like when you're in a a starved state, your body like cries out for food. So there's that element. I mean, I've come to understand them. I mean, this this is like really me influenced by my psychoanalyst. But when I first started working with her, I talked a lot about control. And she was like, eating disorders are illnesses of, of desire. And I was like, no, 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 they're about control. And she was like, no, control is like underneath desire. The desire is for control. Thinking about them in terms of desire has helped me a lot because both anorexia and binge eating, they're about denying one's desire or about giving in to one's desire, about like fearing one's desire. Um, And finally getting over the eating disorders is about like owning one's desire. So that's been like a really helpful way for me to think about this stuff. Whoa. (laughs) There's a lot to think about. Just when you say something that makes me think that I've understood it, then I'm like, oh, but then you add another layer to it where I'm like, oh, okay, control. Okay, no, they're both... Wow. I can understand the aspects about it that are self-control and about the satisfaction of denying yourself something, because I think I've said it before on this podcast that I've joked that I have orthorexia. Uh Um, And I do truly think, even after my experience with my friend in high school, that I have some kind of tendencies toward anorexia in my brain in that, like, I think a lot about eating. In my case, it's a lot about eating the right foods. Um, Mm -hmm. but it is very related to like what's healthy, what's fattening, all that kind of stuff. And so I often feel good about myself if I don't eat something that I want to eat, which is messed up. And that's the self-control aspect that I understand. But the desire piece, I am still not sure I'm clear on. Well, well, so it's sort of like, um, I mean, is there a different food that you would rather eat, I guess? Yeah, I'll eat the thing that's healthy over the thing that I want to eat. Yes. So then your like desire system is being subverted, right? Because you're choosing this other thing and and denying yourself what you really want. Um, and for you, it sounds like it hasn't gone haywire. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for me, it really did. Right, right, right. So, but you were describing before eating granola bars or something that's, that tasted like dog food. So is the binging unrelated to taste? Like you only binge certain things or you binge things that you like to eat or don't like to eat? Uh, how does that work? I think it it differs for everyone. But for me, it really was about sugar. The example I gave of like the Cliff Bars or the Power Bars, that would have been after, you know, after I'd exhausted like whatever sweetness was available, after I'd eaten like the pint of Heath Bar Crunch, after I'd eaten like the frozen, you know, oat bran muffin because it was bolder in the late eighties. <laughs> um, um, so, so for me, sweetness and like like simple carbs were were totally my thing. Um, but like, eventually, you'd get to a point where you like you, you absolutely weren't tasting the food. You know, it was just it, the the impulse. For me, it was just like to keep as long as I was eating, I didn't have to think like I didn't Mm. have to deal with any loss or pain or longing. Um, I didn't have to deal with whatever it was I didn't want to do next. I didn't have to deal with like the self-loathing that was going to follow the binge. Like as long as I was putting a bite in my mouth, um, I didn't have to think. Mm -hmm. Mm. You do talk a lot about it being secretive. But as Kim also talked about this in a previous episode with Marissa Meltzer, like what's happening on the body is impossible to hide and it's right there for everyone to see. So you mentioned that the anorexia people noticed it. How do you hide 
the binging? You only do it in private kind of thing. I can't imagine doing it in front of somebody. So yes, the the act itself was very secretive. But um but I gained weight and and that was noticeable. I had a very hard time coping with uh with myself in what I felt was a different body. I I sort of invented a new personality to be the person I felt was dictated by my body. So for instance, early in high school, I'd been kind of like this slender perfectionist. By the time I got to college and and I was binging, I was like a pretend pothead. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) because I hated smoking pot, it just always made me paranoid and anxious. But I did it because... I mean, not only because it matched who I was, but but in part, like, that's who I could be. I could be kind of like this messy girl from Boulder, kind of like zoning out at night, getting the munchies. Like, the munchies were like a really good, like, cover, right? Really good cover, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think I ever thought that my body would give my secret away, but I I did have... um, a really hard time um, coping with uh, the body that binging made. Well, especially after being anorexic and and taking pride in the control that that, you know, implied. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, um, I had spent a lot of my teens really fixated on... um, on the idea of wanting to be a certain size and look a certain way. But but I, I will also say, though, that um, once the binge eating had gone on, I started when I was 16. And probably by the time I got to college, um, I still didn't feel great about that body. But the behavior itself was so scary. I experienced it so much like an addiction that that I was just scared that I was doing this thing that I couldn't stop. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that was the primary fear, more so even than how I looked, I think. Right. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. 
You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule, essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry leading sustainability. It, it meets, sorry, all of the industry leading sustainability standards. You know, I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump and Hyacera absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. Welcome back to Everything is Fine. Something that I've found is that women can be really cruel and gossipy if they suspect someone is anorexic. It comes up a lot in celebrity tabloid culture in particular. Um, and I always feel like these are people who need and deserve our compassion, but there's often this really ugly edge to it. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think a few reasons. I think that sometimes... When someone is emaciated, uh, there's almost a disgust reaction, right? It's scary to see somebody who looks like a skeleton. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that there's uh, a sense that a woman who would, quote unquote, take things that far uh, must be so superficial that that this is the, the thing she cares so much about that she let it go out of control. When, of course, mm -hmm. an eating disorder, right, is about so much more than wanting to be thin. That's no longer um, why that woman is is not eating. Um, so people feel like it's OK to feel superior to somebody who's superficial. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Hmm. My friend who was um, the anorexic in high school, um, we used to go to the same aerobics class, and she really did look like a skeleton for a long time. And then at some point, she came in just looking really, really skeletal. And the whole place was a buzz, and they basically called a manager, and they asked, ended up asking her to leave. And I don't really think that was the right way to deal with it but I feel like everybody felt like they were taking a stand and they were doing morally the right thing by kicking her out of the gym but it it wasn't very compassionate you know? oh my god that is such a story did she tell <laughs> like how did she did she say how she felt she was really embarrassed she found it really embarrassing and I was talking to Kim about this the other day when we were prepping for this episode and I said like the better way to deal with it would have been to call her parents or to, you know, take her in and speak to her or something. But they just asked her to leave and everybody kind of buzzed around to themselves like, oh, she shouldn't be here. And, blah, 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 blah. And, and I was mortified for her, too, because I was her friend. Oh, wow. I mean, it you know, it reminds me of this experience I had when I was... Um in my early 20s when I was really pretty anorexic and I joined it was like Chelsea Piers was like pretty newly mm. opened mm -hmm. and I was so excited to join Chelsea Piers and I went over there and it was like they had you know the, you got all this stuff free you got like your spa thing and your um, personal training and your fitness assessment like the only thing I wanted was my fitness assessment like in mm -hmm. like the anorexic way I just wanted all the numbers and I did the fitness assessment with this uh, you know young guy and like he looked over all my stuff I had my weight down he asked 
asked me like the date of my um, last menstrual period, which had been, you know, months and months earlier. And then he told me, um, he suggested I see a doctor. Like he told me about this thing called the female athlete triad, which is uh, like overexercise, menstruation, low body weight. Um, Hmm. He was basically saying, you need help. help. Um, And whenever I went to the gym afterwards, I felt like he was looking at me judgmentally, like he didn't want me to be there. And it made me so angry. Um, I mean, I was so mocked inside the anorexia then, like I didn't think I needed to see a doctor. I didn't think I had a problem. I wonder if there's like a commonality in these stories of of anorexic women going to gyms and, uh, and, and this feeling like, wait, this person shouldn't be here. And this like, you know, are are you helping the person? Is it just that you don't want to see it? Like, what is it? Like, what is so, uh, are you doing it to protect that person from like fainting? Exactly. Or are you doing it because you don't want to see her? Or are you doing it to her? protect everybody else? Yeah, right, like, exactly. You, other people, you're protecting, they're, they're seeing her. Like, they shouldn't have to see her because she looks so skinny or whatever. I mean, it sounds like the fitness assessor guy was trying to speak to you diplomatically? Oh, yeah. No, I think he was like doing a good job. But I think I felt so I wouldn't say I felt exposed in that moment. um, But I felt angry that somebody was trying to like take this thing away from me. Like this was, you know, this was what I felt I needed then. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I needed to be the size I needed to eat in the limited way I ate. It's why it's such like a perilous illness is because, um, you really can't see straight when when you're living well, it. I'm thinking in particular about when you, in the book, when you get your bone density test and you don't turn the results into a plus, but you definitely like you, you manipulate that information in a way that will allow you to continue your behavior. Yeah. I mean, the bone density thing scared me. So I, uh, at one point in my early 20s, my aunt, who was always sort of the the most straightforward and direct person in my family about anything, <laughs> about anyone's <laughs> problem, um, it made me, you know, I did what I would have described then, made me go see her doctor and take a bone density <laughs> test. And, uh, and I had, you know, the, I got a letter in the mail with the results. And the letter said something like, you know, Susan has frank evidence of osteoporosis in her spine and then like it listed some other body parts but it was like I couldn't even read the rest like in your spine you know what I mean like mm-hmm. that seems really bad and I was a young woman there was something about it that made it real to me and it wasn't like okay I'm gonna go down to the kitchen and like I'm gonna eat like a normal person again but it was sobering and it was a thing that like I filed away and really settled in me and uh and thankfully inaugurated um, a switch. I also think at that point, like, um, I was very unhappy when I was anorexic. It's very limiting and restrictive. And I was grouchy and cold. And you're um, hungry. Yeah. You're hungry. Yeah. And I was also, you know, it was I was in this relationship with this person I loved. And like, it's no fun. <laughs> I mean, I was no, yeah. no fun and no sex. And like, it just like it was really um, I think I was ready to be done at that point. Right. Why is there no sex? Um, I didn't have sexual desire when I was anorexic. You know, your body shuts down. For me, it did. I wasn't ovulating. I just didn't. I didn't feel anything. I didn't mm-hmm. feel any urgency. 
In one section, you described a history of the female teenage body book in which the author had reviewed hundreds of diaries of teenage girls, and there was a pattern. 19th century girls used their diaries to talk about their goals for character improvement, but 20th century girls wrote almost entirely about the ways they wanted to improve their body, which is just so discouraging. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> maybe maybe in the 21st century, it's different. I don't know. You know? <laughs> Um, she should do an update. Instagram is the teenage girl diary for the present day, and it's not any better than this. It's so true, but I will say that, like, when I see something on Instagram where it's like an Instagram influencer, like she's wearing a bikini or something, and then she'll have like the photo, like, here's how I looked, you know, like five minutes before that photo was taken. And then she's standing there, and like, instead of like, you know, sucking her belly button back to her spine, like she's, you know, like letting it all hang out. Or, you know, like, like mm-hmm. I just feel like there's access to um, evidence that these images are like manipulated in ways that we it's didn't true. have as younger. Yeah. There's one on uh, Instagram who's really great. I think her name is Dene Mercer. And she does some of those before and after where she like makes her body look all, you know, arched back over sex. Right. Kind of bum out photos. And then the next photo, she like sits with her stomach sticking out and with her cellulite showing. And I love her account. <laughs> well, there is I mean, there is there is a new vogue on Instagram and social media for the filterless shot, you know, the mm. the sort of real thing. Like, apparently, that is what all of the influences are very into now, which is not discouraging. I don't know, though. I mean, like, I just feel like everybody is still making themselves look good, even if it's yeah. like, even if it's like pared down, like the impulse is still to present the best version of oneself. I think yeah. the, the kids now, like people my son's age, who's 12, and he's not on Instagram. But if I see the type of aesthetic that his age is drawn to. It is very unfiltered and kind of snapshotty and ugly and not, I, I think it is a little bit different, but I think it's also they're at that age when they look good in every photograph. <laughs> so, <laughs> 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 so they can get away with it. Like if I try to take a snapshot at a stupid angle, I mean, God, it's not going to be the same thing. Yeah, no, I've been trying to take a snapshot at a good angle ever since you asked me to the other day, Tally, and it is, <laughs> it takes I feel a you. lot of tries. I know. So you talked a bit about this at the beginning, about telling your husband, but it's really surprising to me that you only told people a year and a half ago. Were people in your entourage or friends or family, did people say like, oh, I, I kind of knew or I had a feeling about the anorexia part? The anorexia had been visible, so it it was more the binging that had been such a secret. And, I mean, the way I told a lot of people initially, it was people I'd written about. And when I'd finished the manuscript, I sent them the pages. And it was interesting because people in high school often said, I had no idea this was going on for you. And people Hmm. in college said, I knew something was going on for you, but I didn't know what it was. And this explains so much. Um, So I think, yeah, at different points in my life, it felt different. But as far as like actually telling people in my life, in a way, the book feels... I wouldn't say it feels like a cop out, but but it's it's that thing that that I was talking about at the beginning, like having somebody 
read my book and then talk to me about it is a lot easier than uh, going out mm-hmm. for coffee with a friend and talking about it. Although now it wouldn't be that hard for me. I have to say, like, I've been talking a lot about it. Like, I don't, I feel mm-hmm. like I don't have shame about the stuff in my history, but it, it felt impossible for a long time. And, and even in the months before the book came out, when people would ask what it was, sometimes I would freeze up and say, it's a memoir mm-hmm. of my adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I say, it's a memoir of my eating disorders. But it was it was hard for me to articulate for a while. And so how, I mean, it's a big question. So the therapy that you started has helped you out of it. And how are you coping today? I mean, I I feel very different than I felt, I mean, almost my entire adult life around food, which is like really kind of amazing. I never had the illusion that that writing the memoir would, would fix the problems, but it was like the step I needed to take in order to be able to talk about them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like there are a couple different like concrete things I can say about food. Like like when I first started therapy, I said that, you know, part of the reason I was there was because I was preoccupied with food and I didn't want to be. I thought about it all the time. I, it was so distracting, demanded too much of my attention. And my therapist said, um, you think about food all the time because you don't eat enough of it. And... It was one of those things that, like, I immediately recognized as true. And I don't think about food in that same way anymore. I do eat enough of it. Like, there isn't, like, like hunger isn't driving obsessive thoughts. Mm. My body is different. So, for instance, we... Um, there was a big storm in the Northeast yesterday, and we mm. lost power uh, where we were. And we came back to Brooklyn, and I haven't been in our apartment in Brooklyn in a few weeks. And so I'm seeing myself in, like, all the regular mirrors, Um anew and uh i was wearing like these little running shorts and uh like i'm curvier like i have hips and like i just have flesh and um (laughs) when i saw myself in the mirror that would have been the kind of thing that would have i just i would have hated myself i would have been mad at myself and i looked in the mirror and i was just like oh my god this is how i look like, this is how I look like this. Like, it felt a little fun to, <laughs> it, it felt good. It was almost like when I was pregnant and I had uh, my breasts swelled up and um, and it was like, oh my God, this is what it's like to have this body. Mm. And this sounds, I, I don't know, maybe it sounds like a small thing, but it was just such a relief to look at my body and feel like excited about it and pleasure in it, um, which is like something, you know, I've spent years looking in mirrors being dissatisfied in, in some way. No, it doesn't mm. sound like a small thing. It sounds like a really big thing. And the other thing that's remarkable to me, Susan, is that you kind of cured yourself. You didn't go to a therapist at any point in college, or you didn't go to a therapy until a year and a half ago. How did you do that? Oh, I was able to stop binging, but it was only because I just sort of like white knuckled it. And I never, I mean, like the, my solution was just another eating disorder. Like I just, Uh you know, I just stopped eating, you know what I mean? Like I just found a different way to, to, you know, manage the things I couldn't face. I always thought of myself as a really self-reflective person, but I don't think I realized how um, limited I was by my focus on food. So I don't think I, I don't think I healed myself. I do think like I am now, uh, I don't know, maybe this is like the thing of all people who are new to therapy, but now I'm <laughs> one of those people who's like, therapy is the best. Find a good therapist. Find somebody who, who you can talk to. Right. Mm. Thank you. We like we, <laughs> we 
we were crossing things out as we were going along because you talked about so many things you wanted to talk about. Thank you. Oh, good. Yeah, okay, thanks, good. Susan. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thanks, guys. So everybody should absolutely go out and read Empty. It's really riveting and highly, highly recommended by us. And is there anything else you want to tell people to find you, anything like that? Sure. Yes. If people want to find me, um, uh, all my info is on my website, susanburton.net. Fantastic. Thanks so much for listening to Everything is Fine. We are your hosts, Talia Bacassis and Kim France. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you have suggestions for show ideas or anything else, email us at tallyandkim at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram that is EIF Podcast, and you can find Kim on her blog, girlsofacertainage.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.